0: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no, no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and You delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. If you, in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. My strong bulls of shan surround me. Open wide, their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a post and my, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothes. They cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me and my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated.
1: Well, good morning, I'm Tom, welcome. uh, Both of you online and in person, you maybe heard that scripture read and you go, what? Did the Grinch show up at Christ's community? You know, he didn't steal Christmas, I assure you. Psalm 22's poetry is raw. It's uh, very emotional, as you probably picked up, and at first blush, it may not seem very Christmassy. But let me set you at ease because this text actually gives us some of the most compelling glimpses into the deep meaning of the Bethlehem manger. So, I think we need a little help in unpacking. Let's pray before we begin. Again, we're so glad you're here, whether you've joined us online or in person. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this often busy season. Help us to remove the distractions of our minds. Uh, open for us this morning our eyes and hearts to your word and the word made flesh, the good news message for our lives and our world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the hit movie, uh, 1990 Move, or Home Alone, which was the first of, I think, three, has become a permanent fixture in many of our Christmas homes. I know it's been for us in my memories, and uh, I'm sure you've seen it, but Home Alone tells the story of Kevin, who uh, is home all alone in a suburban home in Chicago as his parents enjoy a Paris vacation without him, by accident of course. And it's a really funny entertaining movie, there's lots of action as he tries to fend off all these burglars that try to take him uh, down and so forth. Um, But it's interesting in the movie that um, at first Kevin is, you know, so invigorated in his newfound freedom, he's unleashed from his family. In amazing ways but as the movie progresses it progresses it's actually kind of an interesting profundity that emerges yes in home alone believe that uh, his haunting sense of loneliness begins to emerge and it bubbles to the surface if you remember he begins to miss his family more and more and he feels the desperation of loneliness and in a moment of transparent vulnerability kevin whispers where are you guys where are you guys now, Home Alone is a great title for a movie, but it's anything but a great life. Being abandoned or forsaken or feeling completely alone isn't it true? Is one of the most painful experiences imaginable in our human journey. Like little else, loneliness diminishes our sense of worth. We know now it actually harms our bodies, it robs our joy, and it smothers and swallows up our souls. In a high-tech world where we have been more connected to more people than ever in human history, ironically, we feel increasingly alone. We may have many friends who are connected to us on social media, but few friends who are there for us when life gets really hard. Mental health professionals are telling us all across our nation that we are drowning in a loneliness epidemic. This past week, the Wall Street Journal aptly described our post-COVID cultural moment. And they described it this way, as a loneliness hangover. Add to that, this time of year often heightens the loneliness many of us experience. The Advent season may cause you to feel deeply alone. It has in my life, and I don't know what happened to you this year, but I lost one of my brothers. We can be surrounded by family, friends, and work colleagues, schoolmates during holiday parties, and yet feel desperately alone. Maybe, like me, you've experienced a very hurtful loss this year It may be a growing distance of a cherished friendship. It may be a marriage that is dissolved or melting down or someone very close to you who you've lost to death. This Christmas, your heart is being ambushed as it is mine by a haunting sense of loneliness. There are warm memories that you remember a smile with tender words, I love you, that are not there. There is one less stocking hanging on the mantle this year. There are fewer presents under the Christmas tree, and there is this haunting empty table or chair at the table at dinner. So let me ask you the question. Can we find hope for our hearts when we feel so desperately alone, In the world. If you have a Bible, turn with me to, yes, Psalm 22. As a church family across our campuses, we are in this Advent series we've entitled The Promised King. And here in Psalm 22, we encounter a king who will never leave us home alone. And tucked into this amazing psalm, our three life-giving truths, I want you to tuck into your heart this Advent season. These three truths emerge in this beautiful Hebrew poetry, reminding all of us this morning, wherever we are in our spiritual life, we have a king, number one, who gets our pain, secondly, who goes to the cross for us, and third, gives us lasting hope. He gets our pain, he goes to the cross for us, and he gives us hope. First truth I'd like you to tuck in your heart this morning as we have a king who gets our pain, he gets us. And notice, as you turn your, into the text of Psalm 22, above the actual text is the ascription of David. But this is important, particularly in this psalm, King David. So keep that in mind. Also, you'll notice before we dive in, a flyover of the entire psalm tells us it is both a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry as well as a prophetic thread. The psalm is very clearly divided into two parts, distinctly. Verses 1-21 through is part 1, verses 22-31 through is part 2. And as we explore this psalm, I want you to listen for the first-person singular pronouns that are emphasized, all the I's, all the my's, and all the me's. And that tells us this is a literary genre of an individual Hebrew lament. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. This is quite unusual in Hebrew poetry to come out with such intense emotion. We hear immediately in this psalm an unvarnished, visceral cry with gut-wrenching, heart-arresting and sleepless nights of agony. A very literal translation of the original Hebrew text could well be translated, God of me, God of me, why, why? The psalmist is not only feeling the deepest pains of human abandonment, but abandonment in the God that he has trusted, his forebearers have trusted, but... In this is a burning question that perhaps is the greatest pain. It is the burning question of why. Why would God forsake him? The psalmist cries out to God, Why are you so far from me? The psalmist feels alone and hopeless. Everything in his life has gone pitch black dark. He cannot understand why God has abandoned him. Why is God so definitely silent? Why is God so indifferent to his painful plight? How could it be the God he has trusted since his birth birth, is so unwilling to come to his rescue, even in the cries of his most loudest, most desperate pain? So in these two verses, we have a literary salvo. God's silence and distance is simply incomprehensible to him. And it completely overwhelms him. At the beginning of this lament, the psalmist immediately goes across time and space to our own human broken experience, each one of us. In our spiritual journey, we ask these big why questions too, don't we? In the midst of, for example, a shattered dream, a great loss, an unmet need, a deeply broken heart... An unanswered prayer in a period of extended waiting, waiting, waiting. We wrestle, I wrestle, you wrestle with unsettling why questions that bombard our minds. We cry out to God, don't we? God, where are you? Do you care? Why are you silent? God, do you see me? Do you hear me? God, if you are so good and so powerful, why don't you show up? And why don't you intervene? If you can do it, God, why don't you do it? This is where the psalmist has us. Yet even in the most raw crucible of suffering, we must not miss in the text that the psalmist does not revile God. Instead, he's honest and passionate as he cries out to God. He still addresses God, notice the text, as my God. He feels deeply abandoned, and he feels forsaken by God, but he doesn't forsake and abandon God. In the midst of the most intense pain, perhaps of his entire life, he doesn't turn his back on God. Instead, he tenaciously clings to God. This God, the one true triune God, we will see now as the psalm progresses in a more prophetic thread is referenced here. That is, the promised eternal Davidic king, the promise given to King David in 2 Samuel 7, the promised king who experientially knows the pain the psalmist has experienced, the pain of abandonment, the pain of the agonizing why, the unexplainable why, and the pain of deep personal rejection. Look at verses 6 through 7. This is incredibly intense. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag this idea of derision. They wag their heads. Do you hear his heart breaking? His life shattering. The dehumanizing and devaluing effect of the painful relational rejection he is feeling. He cannot escape. The psalmist cries out, I am a worm and not a man. A worm? Think about that. I don't know if you're into worms, but like, I mean, a worm is like this little slimy thing on the ground. You step on with no consequence, no significance. This gut-wrenching, magnifying metaphor describes his agonized heart. He is being scorned, despised, mocked. It's a picture of intense, callous contempt. Cruelty, beyond cruelty, a hateful rejection by others. Now, this intense emotion, this agonizing pain, the psalmist poetically paints for us in verses 1 through 11, but notice in verse 12 how it begins to take a more visible prophetic thread. What David is describing here does not fit into any recorded painful experience we know David ever had, and that's important. So what is going on here in Psalm 22? Something else, or should I better say someone else, is beginning to come in clear focus in this Psalm. Emerging before our eyes is a suffering-filled portrait of the coming eternal king, the covenant king of 2 Samuel 7 to David, and it's emerging right before our eyes. If we have eyes to see it, it is a portrait of what the prophet Isaiah described as a suffering servant who suffered for our iniquities and by whose stripes we would be healed. It is a promised king who not only gets our pain, but enters our pain and goes to a cross for our pain. This is the second truth I want you to tuck closer to your heart this Advent season. Look with me at verses 12 through 18. Listen to the intense language. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. That is right to devour us. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. They're literally stripped out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me like a pack of dogs. That's the idea. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. Notice the fierce, ravenous, salivating imagery that the Hebrew poet brings to our heart. Strong bulls, ravenous, ready to charge, roaring lions, ready to pounce and devour, growing dogs, right, encircling us, a pack of dogs. They capture what the psalmist is feeling. He is encircled by his enemies. They're ready to unleash the most unimaginable cruelty and deepest suffering. He is surrounded. There is no way out. There is no escape. That's where he has us. Now, the Old Testament scholar, Daniel Estes, helps us grasp the richness of Hebrew poetry because Hebrew poetry, again, transcends a lot of time and space and culture for us, but he captures it. And I'm going to read it slow. Listen carefully. By combining multiple animal images, the psalmist paints a montage that pictures, impressionistically, his horrific suffering. As a result, the reader is given the impression of the terror of cosmic anarchy brought to bear on one figure, a vision of what happens when evil breaks through the normal restraints of humanity because the restraining, correcting salvation and providence of God are absent. This is what we are encountering. The terror of cosmic anarchy is unleashed with hell's greatest fury on Jesus, the cosmic redeemer. The one Messiah who willingly will go to the cross to redeem his good and badly broken world. If you have not read the New Testament, And if you have, I want you to remember with heart and mind this morning the close description of suffering and the parallels of Psalm 22 the gospel writers give us of the account of Jesus' crucifixion. The gospel writers in the New Testament connect the prophetic dots and they paint this picture of Jesus. They see Jesus' crucifixion as precisely in unimaginable detail fulfilling the prophetic portrait of Psalm 22, as well as other Old Testament texts. They repeatedly make the persuasive case both implicitly and explicitly all through the gospel accounts. And I encourage you this Christmas Advent season to not only read the birth account of Jesus, but the crucifixion of Jesus. It will astound you when you look at it through the prophetic lens of Psalm 22. It will also astound you to know that most historians believe the crucifixion, when David wrote this about 1,000 B.C., hadn't even been invented yet in human history as perhaps the most barbaric, torturous death imaginable. Yet David describes it in remarkable and vivid detail. Let me just give you a little connection here. Briefly, consider with me how the gospel writers echo, for example, one gospel writer, Matthew, the most Jewish part of the gospels, gospel writers. For example, just give you a little glimpse. Matthew 27 verse 35 echoes precisely Psalm 22:18, that Jesus' garments are divided by lot, or by dice. Matthew 27 verse 39 echoes Psalm 22:7. They wag their heads at Jesus, as his tormentors. Matthew 27 verse 43 echoes Psalm 22:8. Jesus' enemies taunting and mocking him, and there are several other parallels the other gospel writers connect to Psalm 22, like Jesus on the cross saying, I thirst. But what you must not miss in looking at Psalm 22 is some other intentionality and its brilliance and beauty and connectivity. Jesus' first recorded words on the cross and his last recorded words on the cross are the framing of Psalm 22. Jesus is recorded as saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he ends the last recorded words, at least, that we know, on the cross by saying the words, it is finished. If you look at the end of Psalm 22, you will notice how it ends. It's in your English translation, it's, he has done it. It can be easily translated, very same, it is done or it is finished you see it. The entirety of Psalm 22 is bookended by Jesus' words honored on the cross. So it's not surprising that the Apostle Peter speaks of David, King David, not only as a king, but also as a foretelling prophet. In Acts 2.30, Dr. Luke writes, David being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of Christ, the Messiah. Now hear me carefully. I don't know how you look at the Bible, what your understanding of it is, but let me tell you, it's not just a good book. It's not just an extraordinary book. It's an unimaginable book. The thick prophetic thread of Psalm 22 foretells Jesus, the promised king, with jaw-dropping awe and faith-building confidence in the authenticity, inspiration, veracity of the Holy Scriptures. May this truth. Strengthen the confidence and faith you have in Jesus because this book is the manger in which Jesus is laying. Let's also remember together that the Psalms were, these 150, were the very prayer book of God's covenant people in the first century. Walk back with me in your imagination in time for a moment, would you? In the home and the synagogue, Jesus learned the Psalms. He memorized them. He loved them. But also, Jesus knew they spoke of Him and His kingdom mission in the world. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says this very thing, quote, that everything written about Him in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Stop and reflect with me, would you, for a moment? Imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to, as a young boy and later as a young man, to read and reread Psalm 22. You ever thought about that? Imagine what it was like for Jesus to hear it read in his home and in the synagogue, knowing it was written with him in mind and his messianic mission. It was his destiny to die on a cruel Roman cross, to rescue broken, sinful image-bearers of God like me and you from the penalty of sin and death and eternal separation from God. Can you imagine the hopes and heartaches, what dreams and fears must have filled Jesus' heart (laughs) as he anticipated the path of sacrificial obedience that lay ahead of him? The rugged road to Jerusalem that awaited him? bearing the unimaginable weight of the sin of the world on his scorched and bleeding back. Can you imagine what Jesus felt as he read this text, as he heard it read? No wonder in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, the gospel writers tell he sweat drops of blood. And he cried out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I remember the very first time I visited Bethlehem, uh, the birthplace of Jesus. And Liz and I were on a graduate study program living in Israel. I remember the first time I arrived in Bethlehem at the Church of the Nativity. We are very confident from archaeology and history that Jesus' actual birthplace, this cave, uh, the church of nativity is built over it. So if we're not standing right on it, we are standing very close to where the God of the universe stepped into time and space, took on human flesh, and entered a sin-scarred planet and became a sinless baby. It's also beyond words amazing to grasp Jesus humble circumstances of arriving in the small village of Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, by lechem, the bread of life arising, arriving in Bethlehem, in the remotest part of the Roman Empire. In fact, the prophet Micah, centuries before, had given the very specific, unlikely address. Bethlehem is where the Messiah will be born. But you know what stood out to me most? What I will never forget, my first time in Bethlehem. As I'm standing there, and as I step outside the church door, right to the north, only a handful of miles away, maybe four. They do everything in meters there. From Bethlehem, you cannot help but see the hills of Jerusalem off in the near distance. It was there, on one of those Jerusalem hills, Jesus was crucified. And as I stood there, looking at those hills in the distance from the manger, I had never grasped before that the Bethlehem manger, both topographically and prophetically, points with an exclamation point of extraordinary clarity to the Jerusalem cross. Even at his Bethlehem birth, Jerusalem looms large in the distance just north. Jesus came to that manger to die, to enter our deepest sufferings, but also to bring lasting healing to our greatest suffering, the suffering of sin through his atoning death and death-conquering resurrection. When she was here with us at Christ Community this fall, wonderful apprentice of Jesus, Dr. Julia Sadusky. Amazing person. Mental health professional, researcher. And as she worked with our staff, she beautifully captured Psalm 22. And here's what Dr. Sadusky said. The God of the universe stepped into a body with limitations, and He joins you in your suffering. Os Guinness, who was with us several years ago, our friend, put it this way, our God has wounds. In other words, we have a king who gets our pain. We have a king who goes to the cross, but we have a king who gives us lasting hope, even in our most desperate, lonely, questioning hours. Look at verses 21 through 22. Psalmist says, save me from the mouth of the lion. The psalmist cries out for salvation, right? You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The psalmist sees salvation through the lens of prophecy. Messiah. And the rest of the psalm, you can read it. It's an unending eruption of praise. One thing that's fascinating here, uh, in verse 21, the root Hebrew word, which the original language is in Hebrew, for save is Yeshah or Yisha? You might have heard of that because the name Jesus is Yeshua, which means God saves. In Matthew's gospel, this is not accidental. And the footprints of the Messiah, Yeshua, are all over Psalm 22. In Matthew's gospel, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, he addresses Joseph as the son of David, Right? the Davidic king. He tells him that the child marries Mary's woman is from the Holy Spirit and will be a son. Then the angel Lord says this, you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. In that culture, the firstborn was almost always named after the father. But here, the divine messenger says, no, the name of this son is God saves. And Matthew goes out of his way. Read the, the birth narrative of Matthew this week. To end his birth narrative with this exclamation point, he wraps it all in a bow. Joseph called his name Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus, the promised king, is our rescuer, our great savior, Yeshua, the God who saves. Being fully God and fully man, yet without sin, Jesus entered the deepest human pains. He faced the most alluring temptations. Do not miss that. He wrestled with the most difficult questions Robed in humanity, he faced heart-wrenching rejection, excruciating betrayal, unimaginable injustice, and heartbreaking abandonment. And he did it out of a heart of never-ending, unimaginable love for you and me. The hymn writer says, amazing love. How can it be that my God died for me? As Jesus hung on that cross, the entire universe held its breath and stood on tiptoe. And the horror and hope of all of Psalm 22 is on Jesus' heart and on his lips. With atoning a sacrifice, he paid the debt we could not pay. He paid it for all of us. And Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, looks into the Bethlehem manger and he sees a Jerusalem cross and hanging on it, he sees the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees the meaning of the manger and he summarizes it this way. He, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. King Jesus left this heavenly home so we would never be home alone. He died and rose again and ascended to heaven and will one day return to set the world right and make all things new. This ultimate great future awaits, and the psalmist paints this picture in the last part of Psalm 22, where all the nations, families of the nations, will bow down and worship the king of kings and his reign forever. And George Frederick Handel captured this. In fact, Psalm 22 is in the Messiah. And you hear the words of George Frederick Handel and the echoing of Psalm 22. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah,
0: hallelujah, hallelujah.
1: I don't know where you are this morning in your spiritual journey, friends. Perhaps you're wrestling with some very deep, difficult why questions of faith, of your own life circumstances. Why has God allowed this in my life? Why hasn't God done what I asked Him? Why so much pain and suffering? I can't give you all the answers for that, but I can point you to someone. For the greatest why questions ultimately point to us the greatest who. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Each one of us needs more of a who than a why. We need the promised King. The Lord of lords and King of kings. King Jesus Gave his followers the promise that he would never leave them or forsake them. Do you know that some of his last recorded words in the Gospels are what? I am with you always, even to the end of time itself. We are never alone. And did you know that in the book of Psalms, the Psalter, there are 150, and they are arranged in perfect order. You must not miss it. It's not incidental that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22. The suffering described in Psalm 22 is followed by the good shepherd who restores us and is always with us even when we walk through the darkest valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death. We have a king who will never forsake or abandon us. He will never leave us home alone, ever. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, where are you in your spiritual journey and your relationship to Jesus? Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior in repentance and faith? If you have not, would you do that in the quietness of your heart this morning? Will you find new life and lasting hope and forgiveness of the one who gets your pain, who went to the cross for you, and will give you lasting hope now and forever. And if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, may you lean more closely into his love and tenderness and presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.